0: All right, so we are talking about the Gospel of Mark. We'll do John after Christmas break. So you guys um, have read it, and um, did some, some of you did some writing assignments. So what are some things you can tell me about the Gospel of Mark that you learned? Yeah, it is. Did you guys pick up on the word immediately? But notice, you noticed that? Okay. Yeah, it's used 45 times or something like that. Je- whatever Jesus does, he does it immediately. Yeah. Yeah, if you have uh the words of Jesus in red in your Bible, the Gospel of Luke has tons of red. Uh in that middle section where all the parables are, tons of red. But if you uh but it that the Gospel of Mark actually it has red in there, but it's a lot less. And you've got chapter 13, which is a lot longer teaching. You've got other teaching sections, but there's a lot less read than um, in the, the Gospel of Mark or, or sorry, the Gospel of Luke or the Gospel of Matthew. Definitely John. John has tons of long conversations. Mark is really different. That's all good. We're going to take uh, a few minutes at the start here. And so, uh, you, McClouds, you guys have three in your group there, so that's perfect. Sorry, Logan, you're alone. But break into groups of three or four. And what we're going to do is we're going to compare. We've already done this once, I think. We're going to compare the opening chapters of the Gospels. Have we done that before? No? Okay. Um, So what you're going to do is you're going to look at Mark 1. Sorry, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Matthew 1, Mark 1, Luke 1, and John 1. You guys can be five. That's totally great. You guys are four back there. That's good. And what you want to do is just list out what are the what are the things you notice about um, <clears throat> the differences between the gospels, and then we'll regroup. Yep, each of the four Gospels, chapter one, what are some basic differences you notice? And I will be right back. All right, guys, let's stop there. So what what'd you guys notice? So I will... Matthew, Mark... Luke. John. What are some things we noticed about these four gospels in the opening chapters? Luke's verse Luke's chapters are a lot longer. Yes. Matthew's a lot like Luke, and Mark is a lot like John. At least in the first chapter. Matthew, Luke, Mark is a lot like John. Okay. That's a good thought. What they have in yeah. Yeah, good. Luke is very formal. Uh good. That is true. Yeah, um, that's a uh, that is true. Although Mark starts by the mention of the Son of God, that's pretty strong too. But I know what you're saying. Yeah, theological um, ideas. Yes, or that half of the room. What'd you guys notice? Anyone from our studio audience? Would you guys notice? Logan, McClouds? The first sentence is very similar. Yeah. That is true. Good. So, you guys do need to open to Mark while we're talking here. So the mention of the first sentence is a good segue to that to to mark so mark one one says the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God, and gospel means what good news. Gospel means good news yeah um so it's the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ the Son of God, so right there in one one you get that announcement that Jesus is the Son of God so we don't we don't wonder it's not it's not uh Un- unfolded for us gradually uh, in Mark's gospel who Jesus is but it's right at the right at the start um, and just by comparison let's go back to Matthew 1 1 so you can see the difference Matthew 1: 1 says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David the son of Abraham so you're not told, so in both you're told that he's Jesus Christ. Of course, he's Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Anointed One. Matthew ties him to the Old Testament. He's the son of David, son of Abraham. But Mark is tying him to God himself. So he's the son of God. Um, all of those are true, right? So it's not a matter of, of which is true, which is false. It's just a different way to tell the story. So Mark wants you to know, right, whoa, I knew that was going to happen. Mark wants you to know immediately from the start of his gospel that Jesus is the Son of God. Everything he does, he does as the Son of God. It is, it is true for Matthew too, but he wants it to that part of his uh, personhood to be unfolded just a little bit more gradually. Is that a hand? Or are you just stretching? stretching? Just stretching, all right. Um, so we, we've talked about this before, um, because seeing how the Gospels inter- interrelate, you do need to figure out which one is first, because that, that kind of tells you how the Gospels came to be. Uh, so Mark is the first Gospel. There was a lot of history where they felt like Matthew was the first Gospel, kind of in the order of your New Testament, right? Matthew, Matthew's got to be the oldest because he's first in the, in the set of four. Mark came along later as some kind of abbreviated shorthand version of Matthew that over time was proven to be not true. In the end... Um, The best view is to say that Mark was the first gospel. So Peter speaking through Mark is how we got the gospel of Mark. Um, And the date is a little tricky. Could be as early as the 40s, definitely in the 50s. A high likelihood it's in the 50s. Could be as late as the 60s, but it's probably uh, late 40s or 50s. Um, And so it's from Mark you get the basic uh, plot line of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And we've talked about this before, um, but just to review... You guys remember what we said was distinct about Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and how they organize the material. It was geographical. geographical. It's not only geographical. I mean, it's basically chronological. Uh, I mean, obviously. Uh, The baptism of Jesus happens before the crucifixion. So there is a chronology in in Mark's gospel, basically. But uh, the tighter organization does seem to be geographical. Um, So he starts off in Galilee, works his way to Jerusalem... then actually we'll see at the very end that the last, one of the last references to geography in the, in the Gospel of Mark is actually back to Galilee. Kind of interesting. But yeah, that north to south, uh, Galilee's in the north, it's uh, by the Sea of Galilee, and then you have the Jordan River that runs through the edge, or runs through the middle of uh, the, the eastern edge of Jerusalem. Israel, sorry. And then you get to the Dead Sea down below, which is uh, just to the east of Jerusalem. And that's kind of how the story unfolds. So he does his miracles, calls his disciples, does a lot of teaching in Galilee. And then you have the journey to Jerusalem. So we've, uh, Ellie mentioned the, the confession of Peter. So who do you say that I am? Jesus said you are the Christ, the Son of God. And immediately after that, he begins to make his way to Jerusalem. So this is, this is like chapters 8 to 10-ish. And then, then there's a triumphal entry in Jerusalem. And then the, the early encounters, the kind of the boxing match with the Pharisees and the uh, Jewish leaders. Chapters 8, 11 to 13. And then you get the cross and the resurrection in uh, 14 to 16. Um, so this is kind of 1 to 8. <clears throat> so that's the basic outline of Mark. And then, because it's first, has a huge influence. Matthew and Luke basically adopt that same basic uh, idea, but they added front matter. So Matthew and Luke start with what? We said it, but just to say it again. I mean, Matthew starts with the genealogy, but I mean, in terms of the storyline of Jesus, where does he where does he start? His birth. Yeah, birth. So Matthew. Matthew starts with the birth of Jesus Luke starts with the birth of John, the slightly older cousin of Jesus um, so but then he goes really very quickly by the end of chapter one to the birth of Jesus so the birth narratives are material that those guys added uh, to mark 's gospel um, yeah the early the early church um, Backing the, into the 100s. In, so this is Papias, Papias, sorry, Papias, Bishop of Hierapolis. So in about 140, he writes this quote. And this is on the bottom of my page 38. The elder, meaning the Apostle John, said this also. Mark, who became Peter's interpreter, wrote accurately, though not in order, all that he remembered of the things said or done by the Lord, for he had neither heard the Lord nor been one of his followers, but afterwards, as I said, he he had followed Peter, who used to compose his discourses with a view to the needs of his hearers, but not as though he were drawing up a connected account of the Lord's sayings. So Mark made no mistake in thus recording some things just as he remembered them, for he was careful of this one thing to omit none of the things he had heard and to make no untrue statements therein. But that connection between Peter and Mark is important. So we... We look at Mark as having eyewitness testimony, but not his own eyewitness testimony. So Mark is relying on Peter's eyewitness testimony. Um, yeah, and so Mark, the Mark we're talking about is actually called John Mark in certain places in the New Testament. Um, so actually in Acts twelve twelve, uh, let me read Acts 12, 12, because that's the first reference to who this guy is. Acts 12.12 12 says, so this is uh, after Peter's release from prison. Uh, so when, when Peter realized that he wasn't just having a vision, but actually he was being released from prison physically, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So that John Mark is the John Mark that wrote the gospel. And he has a he has an interesting history, it kind of parallels Peter's own history. So he's gonna he's gonna feature prominently in in uh, the the uh, missionary work of Paul and Barnabas. He's gonna go with them, but but actually it says that at a certain point in the in their first missionary journey, John leaves them. He's called John at some points, Mark in other places, um, but it's the same person. Uh, so John leaves them, and then later in the second missionary journey. When Paul and Barnabas are about to leave, Barnabas wants to take John Mark, who is actually Barnabas's cousin, um, and he wants to take John Mark. But Paul says, "No, he's he left us last time. He's going to leave us again. Let's not bring him." Um, so, a, a low moment for John Mark's reputation in the church. But turns out that he had restored himself over time, proved himself over time, and so when you get to the Book of Colossians, uh, when Paul's in prison in Rome. He asks, you know, bring with you uh bring with you John Mark who's useful to me in my ministry. Sorry, that was 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 4:11. Get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful to me for ministry. Uh, and the significance of 2 Timothy's imprisonment is that's the one where Paul's not going to be released. So, at the end of Colossians, Paul is re- or Paul will be released, but at the end of 2 Timothy, that the imprisonment he's talking about there, he's not going to be released. Um, And then the other significant reference to John Mark is uh, 1 Peter 5.13. So Peter refers to to Mark as my son. Um, Yeah, so interesting histories of both Peter and and Mark. Start strong, have a pretty bad bad moment, and then are restored uh, through grace and providence. So sometimes with uh, the gospels you're you spend some time thinking about who is this probably written to? Who is the who is the key art audience that it has in mind? And uh, with Mark it te- it, the, the thinking tends to be that he's writing for a for a non-Jewish audience because there's things that he explains in his gospel that he wouldn't need to explain if he was talking to to Jews. So as an example in Mark 7 this is a This is actually a a parenthetical comment. So the ESVs actually put it in parentheses, which is helpful. There there, there weren't parentheses uh, when Greek was first written in the first century, but ESVs put it in parentheses because that's the idea of it. So Mark, is, he starts off, he, he says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to, to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. So the Pharisees are uh, uh, observing something that Jesus, Jesus and his disciples are doing. And they're about to freak out about it. But before they freak out about it, Mark wants you to understand why is this a big deal? So Mark inserts there in verses 3 and 4, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots in copper vessels and dining couches. It's a, lot, it's a long parenthesis, isn't it? But you can see he's explaining Jewish customs to his readers. There would be no need to do that, obviously, if he was writing to Jews. So the thinking is that he's he's writing to Romans, Gentiles, people who aren't just well-schooled in Jewish tradition. And actually another another clue that that's the case is back in chapter 1, verse 12. So when you have the temptation of Jesus, uh, if if you look at Matthew and Luke's description of Jesus is 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. It just says that he was, he was uh, led by the Spirit into the wilderness, didn't eat or drink for 40 days, and then he was tempted by the devil. But in Mark's description of this in verses 1, 12, and 13, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, or beasts, actually in the Greek. He was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. And that's all he says. And the, that the wild beasts—that uh, phrase in Greek would be the same phrase that would be used uh, when they're describing people in the arena. So when people are, uh, you know, put in the arena with wild beasts, and, and the whole crowd is sitting there, w- basically waiting for the people to be eaten by those wild beasts, um, it's the same phrase. So in other words, he knows he knows the, what Romans like, what they're used to, and so he he describes things in language that would be more familiar to them. Um, so, just interesting little factoid there for you um, all right so now we get to the outline and uh, LA alluded to this but there are two broad points or two broad uh, parts to mark so let's get away from this for a second So 1-1-826, we can call that the Son of God, part one. And then 16, 8 27 to 16.8, we'll call that uh the suffering servant. You guys know where that language comes from? Suffering servant. Does that sound familiar? Maybe, maybe not. It comes from Isaiah, yeah. Um, especially Isaiah 53. So the servant songs in Isaiah uh, are these prophecies about the servant of the Lord. And it it gives various uh, truths about this unique servant of the Lord. And one of those is that he's going to suffer. And his suffering isn't just uh, the people hate him and kill him or anything um, so narrow as that, but actually his suffering is going to accomplish redemption. And so in Isaiah 53, you get that, that he is going to suffer, but that suffering is going to accomplish redemption. So the suffering servant, what you see in the the cross descriptions in the gospels is all these references, subtle and not so subtle, to Isaiah 53 and the servant songs. Um, So that's why you use that suffering servant language. Um, And then the other thing, we'll, we'll look at it in just a minute, but 169 to the end, which is of course 16. This is an appendix not written by Mark himself. So we will explore that issue. But so this is really the gospel of Mark. Um, yes. So this is a quote from uh, Kostenberger and Goswell under uh, Roman numeral two here on page forty. Mark's entire gospel becomes essentially a passion narrative, which has to do with the cro- with the cross, a passion narrative with an extended introduction. Consequently, Jesus is set forth as the Son of God in the first half of Mark's narrative, while he emerges as a suffering servant in the second half. All right, so now we want to we want to go a little bit further, actually a lot further on the cross, and the crucifixion than we, we've tended to do for the previous gospel looks. So turn to chapter 8. So we're going to pick it up at the suffering servant right at the beginning of part 2, which is at eight twenty seven 827 through 30. So Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, which would, we're still in the northern part. We haven't, we haven't made our way to J- Jerusalem quite yet. Um, that's in the northern part around Galilee. So he went on with his uh, disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So before Jesus, I mean, it almost ever mentions the cross, he wants his disciples to understand exactly who he is. But as soon as, he, as soon as they get who he is, he immediately begins to talk about the cross. Because the very next thing said after verse 30 is, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So he immediately begins to teach on the cross. So it's an interesting progression. Um, takes, it takes some time, obviously. It takes uh, yeah, a, a significant part of Jesus' ministry before the disciples really get some sense of who he is. But then he be, then he adds this cross, the suffering servant piece, to that. And then they have no idea what to think because um, what happens is Peter's actually going to rebuke. Well, let me just read it. So, and he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Peter just can't, Just he can't put it all together. He, he gets Jesus as a as a king, as the Christ, as the promised one, the Messiah, the prophet who was to come. He gets Jesus in all those ways. But as soon as Jesus talks about being crucified, then Peter has no idea what to make of that. He just assumes Peter is, or uh, Jesus is somehow violently wrong, and so he actually rebukes Jesus. Um, it's not a good position to be in. If you ever find yourself there, don't do it. And then he gets called out, I mean, badly. Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. In other words, you have a very human understanding of me and what I am here to do. You don't have a divine understanding. All right, so what we have in 8 through 10 is you have three predictions. All right, so write this down. You've got 8.31. Mark 831. You're going to do a little comparison here. Mark 831. And then Mark 9 31, just to keep it simple. And then 10, almost 31, but not quite. 1033. 10, 1033 10, and 34. So you got 831, 931, and then 10, 33 and 34. These are all cross-predictions. Did you guys get all the references? We all good? 831, 931, 1033, or thirty-four. These are all cross-predictions, slightly different. So I'm going to give you 90 seconds. No, I'm going to give you 60 seconds. 60 seconds, and you're going to tell me at the end of that 60 seconds, what are the differences? And obviously you're pretty precise here. The precise differences between these three cross-predictions Okay, so we'll start with who. Who is going to do this to Jesus? What are the differences you guys noticed? Elders, chief priests, and scribes. Elders, chief priests, and scribes. So that's a long list there. That's Everyone's involved there. And then 931, who does it? Hands of men. And then chapter 10? Gentiles. Gentiles. That's interesting, isn't it? All of those are true, aren't they? But they're different. So you have the Jewish leaders. You have the hands of men. And then you have the Gentiles. So who were the Gentiles involved in the crucifixion? Yeah, Roman soldiers, right. They're the guys who actually did the physical killing of Jesus. But they wouldn't have been in that position without the Jewish leaders falsely accusing Jesus. Um, And then what about what happens to Jesus? What do you guys notice the differences? He will suffer and be rejected. Okay. Suffer and rejected. Thus, suffering servant. Nine thirty one. Killed. Just more simply. Yeah. Killed, and then what about ten? Him, him and spit on him and him after three days. He yeah, very specific, right? Um. Yeah, and I forget which. So that mentioned the three days, uh, the resurrection. Um, do the first two mention the resurrection? They all end with that, okay. There's a little word. um, We'll just call this little differences. Um, In chapter 8, you get the word must. The Son of Man must be killed. Uh, That... That tells us that this is not an accident, that this is part of God's plan. And it's that the fact that it must happen, we're going to see later that it, it must happen because that's what the scriptures say. It must happen because that's the Father's design. Um, it must happen because without it happening, there is no payment for sins, and we aren't, we aren't saved. So it must happen for all those reasons. Um, any other little differences you guys notice between the three? That's fine. Um, Yeah, and then one thing, one important thing about the teaching in Mark and the teaching of Jesus, uh, if you go back to chapter 8. So Jesus teaches on the crucifixion. And then in 834, he, he called the crowd to him with his disciples, and he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So the cross is not just what happens to Jesus and what he must do to fulfill our redemption, but it's actually a model for us in how we are supposed to live our lives. So it's it's a it's a it's a it's a picture of discipleship. It's a model of discipleship. It's our example, ultimate example in discipleship. It's what discipleship is. Discipleship is. Following Christ to the cross, taking up your own cross, not to pay pay for anyone else's sins, of course, only he only Jesus pays for sins with his cross, but as a model for denying yourself and and laying your own rights down and um, doing whatever whatever God requires of you. Um, it's a, It's giving up your life, so you can't keep your life and follow Christ at the same time, in other words. You have to give up your life in order to follow Christ. So the the cross functions in that way too. All right, so now we want to get to some of the the meanings of the cross. Um, We mentioned that it's an example. It must happen. And now uh, this is one of the important meanings that we get in Mark's gospel. So turn to chapter 10, verse 45. Uh, 1045 says, so he's he's been teaching on on servanthood. To to follow Christ, you're not supposed to seek the highest positions, but seek the lowest, be a servant of all. Um, And, of course, that description follows this kind of funny moment in verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. You know, I want my friends saved. I want to be healed. No, it's not that at all. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they, they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. That's a pretty bold ask, isn't it? Jesus said to them, you, you do not know what you are asking. And there's so many reasons why that's true. But the one he mentions is, you don't understand the suffering that it's going to take for me to receive my glory. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And, of course, they have no idea what they're talking about, but they feel very confident. Then Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. They both will will suffer for the sake of the gospel. They won't be quite as boastful boastful and arrogant uh, when that happens, but um, they will ultimately be glorified, actually, through suffering. So that's the context, and then Jesus uh, talks about servanthood, and then he finishes this this teaching moment with verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So this is is a, a pretty critical understanding of the cross. And if you just think of, like set aside the the bible story of redemption for a second and when you just hear ransom what do you think of the payment of a ransom or demanding a ransom what do you guys think of yeah in in stories and in history kidnapping is probably the most common place you know there's a someone takes somebody else and then there's a a ransom uh price set and then you, you pay the ransom price and then you'll get this person back uh, slaves is another context um, where you have a, a ransom price paid to deliver a slave. Um, but yeah, kidnapping. So, But that, that idea there is helpful because you, you have to pay the price, and if you pay the price, the person is delivered. They're, they're released from their imprisonment or their captivity. And that same idea is true for us. So the... Uh, The ransom has to be paid if we are to be delivered. But in our case, we're not kidnapped. Uh, We are imprisoned by our own sin. And so we're sinners imprisoned, waiting for judgment, an eternal judgment, unless there's a price paid, unless there's a payment made for us to get us out of this predicament. And so that's what Jesus' life is. He gives his life. He came to give his life as that ransom for many. Um. A lot, we, uh, yeah. What are, so what are some things that come to mind when you just think about Jesus offering his life as a ransom for many what are some lessons we can learn from that uh, some things we can learn from that yeah so the love of God is revealed in that the mercy of God is revealed the goodness of God is revealed in that yeah yeah yeah, so he wasn't a, a military or political deliverer, but he did deliver us nonetheless, yeah. And that, that, the fact he didn't uh, accomplish a military deliverance or, or a political del- deliverance is why people were so confused by what he did. So they were when he was crucified, it was just completely shocking because they, they just naturally assumed that, well, if he's the Messiah, he's also the, the one that's going to fulfill all those great military promises in the Old Testament where Israel rises to the top of all the nations of the world. And so when that didn't happen, they were they were shocked. They did they just didn't see that coming at all. One lesson one lesson to learn from this is how big a deal our sin is. You your sin can't just be overlooked in a casual way. Um, there's a lot of things that people do to you. Uh, some some are not are not wrong. They just they're just painful. You know the you know things happen in. Yep. soccer games or basketball games and it's unpleasant um, but you overlook it you know it's it's a small thing so you just go on with your life no big deal but our sin is a very big deal so it can't just be overlooked in this casual simple way but it demands the death of the son of God the death of, of Christ and so that's that just tells you our sin is a very big deal um, so you do see the love of God in it but you also see the the enormity of sin and the problem of sin sin is not a, a small problem to be solved it, it takes a tremendous solution um, but that's Christ uh, suffering for us as a ransom so another meaning of the cross which now let's fast forward to chapter 13 so Jesus is now in Jerusalem chapter 11 right yes is the triumphal entry mark 11 So from this point on, he's in Jerusalem. There's all the conflicts with the Pharisees. Uh, It's it's like this uh, high-level, it's a combination of a debate and a boxing match kind of. Um, But in 1327, which is not right, it's not 1327. It's twelve. No, it's totally not, chapter 12. What is going on here? In my Bible, it's just all screwy. 14. Helps to read those little numbers at the top of the page correctly. 1427. All right, so this is another way to look at the cross. Uh, so Jesus is talking to uh, his disciples. At this point, it's late Thursday night or early Friday morning before he's crucified. So we're in the last hours before his arrest, and then everything just starts to unfold. So when they had sung a hymn, so they've done the Lord's Supper. So this amazing picture of the cross, and we could have focused on that, but we're not. Um, Amazing picture of the cross in the Lord's Supper itself. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, which would not have been very far away, just very near the temple. Uh, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. And can you guys who have cross-references in your Bible tell me where that comes from? Zechariah thirteen seven. A lot of prophecies in the book of Zechariah that have to do with Christ. Uh, many, 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 I don't know, maybe a dozen very clear prophecies that are that are quoted in the New Testament. But this is one of them. Um, you know, this is, this is I, I mentioned that word must. These things must happen. And one of the reasons these things must happen is because of all these places where it is written in the Old Testament, these very specific things. So it is written in the Old Testament that, well, the I will strike the shepherd is referring to God the Father, right? God is going to strike the shepherd. God is going to strike the shepherd, and then when he does that, the sheep will be scattered. So that must happen because it's an Old Testament prophecy that must be fulfilled. Um, so this is um, this wouldn't be a, pro- a prophecy that that tells you about redemption necessarily, but it tells you what's going to happen. The shepherd will be struck forcefully and. With, uh, with legal, lethal force actually and when that happens the sheep are actually going to be scattered although just temporarily the sheep will be scattered and then the shepherd will rise again and the sheep will be brought back to himself um, so that's, that's another aspect of the cross it is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and then we turn into chapter 14 verse 36 so now we're in Gethsemane the Garden of Gethsemane, on the, which is on the Mount of Olives, uh, and this is where Jesus famously prays, sweats drops of blood uh, because he's in such angst. Um, and apparently, that that can happen if if you are if you are in such emotional turmoil, uh, your body is just tense and. Um, uh, that, just that combination of fearful in, in your body and in your in your emotions are all just intensely wrapped up in that. You actually can uh, literally sweat drops of blood. And so that's that's what's happening here with Jesus. Uh, but then his prayer is what we want to focus on. So, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So that's Jesus in, in some ways, this is where you tap into Jesus the man. Uh, where he, he is. Remember, he's the God-man. He's two natures in one person. So he's a, he has a divine nature, he has a human nature. And at times, you see the divine nature clearly, and at times, you see the human nature clearly. And this is one of those human nature moments. Uh, so Jesus is sincerely praying, he's not pretending to pray, but he's sincerely praying to the Father, all things are possible for you. So there's that declar- great declaration of faith, total faith in the Father. And then he sincerely prays, remove this cup from me. And what is the cup he's talking about? Kind of an obvious question, but what's the cup he's talking about there? Yeah, the crucifixion. You know, let there be some other way for us, for us to accomplish redemption than the crucifixion. So remove this cup from me. And again, that's a sincere prayer. But he closes with, yet not what I will, but what you will. What the Father wills is what he will commit himself to do. So the crucifixion then is, it's not an an accident in this impressive biography of a great man. It's it's the Father's will that it happens. And it's, it's God's will. So it's the Father, Son, and Spirit's will that it happens. So we don't want to think that there's different wills within the Godhead. But in this moment, you see the, uh, you know, as, as the redemption, as redemption unfolds, you see the persons of the Trinity doing different things at different times, um, even though ultimately what's happening is, is all because of the design of Father, Son, Spirit. They all willed together for this to happen. But the point here is just to say that this is Jesus fulfilling the will of the Father by going to the cross and then we turn to the crucifixion itself, chapter fifteen. So let's pick it up at. Well, let's pick it up at fifteen sixteen, just because we read the prophecies where Jesus prophesied that this would happen, and let's start, Gene, uh, Let's start with you. And let's each read two verses, starting at chapter 15, verse 16. We'll each read two verses, then we'll just work away back table, front table. And we'll t- read it to verse 39. So 1516 to 1539, two verses at a shot. Amen. So there's a lot we could uh, look at there, but I want to focus on verse 38. So immediately after Jesus' death, this kind of strange thing happens. The curtain of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. Um, so the, 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 the temple in Jerusalem, and this time would have been Herod's temple, significant place. Uh, you've got an outer court. Um, the very outer court is where Gentiles could go. And then you have another court where women could go, and then there was a place where uh, no one could go further except for priests, and so they, that's where the the altar would be. So the big altar, and so on days like the day of Passover or the uh, the day of Atonement, uh, all kinds of animal sacrifices are going on. So it's a big altar, lots of animals, um, and you keep going, and you get to the holy place, the most holy place. So it's a it's a it would be a raised Area, not a huge area, but a raised area, um, and had a massive temple. I think it. I think it's 40 feet high, something like that. Thick, um, sorry, massive curtain. Um, I think I think 40 feet high. Thick. You know, you think of like a very thick velvet curtain, like on a window. Um, you know, for you just to rip it would be impossible. Um, and the purpose of that that curtain there is so that no one would go past the curtain. Uh, um, you know, and there's different things on the other side of that curtain. But what's what's one thing that they would have believed was on the other side of that curtain? Yeah, the very presence of God. And at that time, you know, that time being from the time of Moses until that time right there, until this day actually that we're reading about, until that time, no one could go through that curtain except the high priest once a year. On the Day of Atonement, and this is described in Leviticus 16, on the Day of Atonement, the priest could go through that curtain into the presence of God and offer sacrifices and then leave. I mean, he wouldn't go in and just hang out, you know, watch TV for the day, and then you know, go back to his normal life, some vacation day or something. No, he would go in because he had very specific uh, blood to sprinkle on the tabernacle um, or on the, uh, on the Ark, Ark of the Covenant. So he would go in, he would do that, and then he would leave. Um, but that's where the presence of God was. And so then he would leave, and he would have uh, um, bells on his ankles so that if he died, they would know it because the bell would stop ringing, and they would know they would need to pull him out. Um, if he didn't die, great, he would come back out. But to them, that that was the presence of God. And I say to them, but that was that was God's design, that there would be this the structure and the ceremony in place that would tell people you can't just go into the presence of God in a casual way because you are sinful. And so what what changes forever at this moment for the people of God is that the perfect, complete, once-for-all sacrifice is offered. So when Jesus offers his own blood for for the sacrifice of our sins, there's no more sacrifices required because there's no, there's no sin left to pay for. It's all totally paid for, again, for the people of God. And so, because that, that once and for all sacrifice is offered, then there doesn't need to be any kind of barrier between us and the presence of God. Our sin is no longer a problem. God's, God's anger and wrath is no longer a problem. So we can just go into the presence of God. We still don't go casually. We go reverently. We go with an awareness of, of in some ways, the... the an awareness of the fact we don't deserve to be there, but we also go confidently. Uh, The book of Hebrews talks about being confident to enter the holy place. Confident not because you're such a great person, but confident because the blood of Jesus was offered for us, and it's, it's all that's required. And so the curtain of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. You know, tearing it from the bottom, maybe two really strong guys could take a, take a side of the curtain and rip it from the from the bottom, but nobody could rip it from the top. No person could rip it from the top. That was a divine, miraculous moment. So this is really God telling you, telling the world, telling us the way is open. The way into the presence of God is now open to us because of the sacrifice offered by Christ. So it's one of those signs of everything being different that is it's wonderful. It's powerful. It's a it's a gospel declaration. It's kind of like, in a, in a very similar way. It's like the rainbow from for Noah, you know, this devastating flood that wipes out humanity and creatures, all kinds of all kinds of death because of sin. But then there's this rainbow in the cloud that where God declares, I will never again do this. And so this this curtain being torn in, in a in a and it's kind of a similar kind of sign. Uh, There has been a death that's occurred that has now satisfied the demand for the payment of sin. So that's one of the wonderful signs we have. And then the second sign is the last part of the book. So chapter 16. So when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, when the sun had arisen, they went to the tomb, and they were, they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the, on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. We, we know from uh, Matthew's Gospel that it's an angel. So... It's not just a guy in a white robe that scared them. It was the fact that Andy happened to be an angel. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they had laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And then the gospel ends. The gospel mark ends right there. So the sign, the second sign, you have the sign of the the ripped curtain, top to bottom, and then the second great sign that everything is different now is the empty tomb. You have an empty tomb, which declares Jesus is risen. He's not. He's not there anymore. His body is not there. There's no need to look for his bo- for his dead body anywhere because he has risen, just as he said. You know, he, and those. What I erased them, but you know that 831, 931, 1033, and 34, those three prophecies where he would be where he would rise three days later, he has risen just as he said. It's happened. And why would why would this angel say, Tell his disciples and Peter? Why would why would he have added that little and Peter phrase? Yeah, three times Peter denies him. I mean, it's possible Peter would have thought, forget it, I have no, I have no future, whatever. God can't use me. Uh, I don't belong with these other guys. They didn't do what I did. I mean, there's a lot of things he could have thought. And so so the Lord goes really goes out of his way, as you might say. He goes out of his way so that Peter would know that this, is, this includes you, even those who deny Christ. This includes you. And then, like I said, it ends with them going back to Galilee. And so they, they see Christ there. They're going to make their way back to <clears throat> Jerusalem, which is where Jesus will ascend. Um, but first they're going to see him in Galilee, just as he told you. So glory to God. You guys have a Savior, the suffering servant. All right, we're done. So you guys, we'll see you... Uh, In January, of course, we'll see you before then, but we'll also see you in January. Thank you to our TV audience. Later, guys. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you.